0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures,
1: stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Longmore Hub Arts and Humanities, Humanities Research the Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. Created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone.
0: Hello, everybody. Uh, very nice to see you all here in person. My name is Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, and I'm welcoming you and I'm also welcoming many people joining us on Facebook to watch the live stream of this conversation which we've been looking forward to for several weeks now because uh, I'm delighted to have with us uh, Rashid Khalidi who joins us for this fellow in focus conversation. Uh, he is one of those few people who really doesn't need an introduction but let me give a brief introduction to him anyway. I know that many people here already know him or have met him, but uh, for those of you who haven't, Rashid is the Edward Saeed Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University, uh, where he served as Chair of the History Department and Director of the Middle East Institute. Uh, he holds uh, his BA from uh, Yale, his PhD from Oxford. He has taught at many uh, international and highly esteemed universities. Uh, He's co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association. And of course, of great interest to us, was an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to uh, Madrid and to the Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations. This was back between 91 and 93, uh, Rashid. Uh, And uh, of that era of uh, shuttle diplomacy, Um, He's written on how being at the coalface of those negotiations, and I quote, reveals how rapidly views of self and other, of history and of time and space could shift in situations of extreme political stress, which could be seen as watersheds in terms of identity. And I, I, I like quoting that partly because one of the things that may come up in our conversation today is this idea of watersheds in historical timelines, and particularly the timelines that Rashid has been looking at, uh, he has received, as many of you will know, fellowships and grants from numerous prestigious organisations around the world. He's written uh, over a hundred scholarly articles and book chapters on Middle Eastern history and politics, many, many opinion pieces across the international media landscape. And of course, he is the author of several books, and I would note that some of these are specifically, as he's written, uh, uh, published for a broad non-specialist audience in the belief that the history of Palestine and of post-colonial nationalism generally needs to be made familiar and accessible to a broad readership and audience. His books include Palestinian identity, the construction of modern National Consciousness. That was 1997, reissued in 2010. Uh, The Iron Cage, the story of the Palestinian struggle for statehood, 2006. I'm selecting uh, from a very long list here. Uh, And then, of course, most recently from 2020, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. I'm going to hold that up, but many of you will have it already. A History of Settler Colonial Conquest and Resistance. in the Trinity Long Room Hub over the past few weeks, Rashid has joined us to look further at the parallels and uh, the similarities between the colonial administration of Ireland and Palestine. In the Hundred Years' War, he writes that the first most promising way to comprehend Palestine reality is, and I quote, the fertile comparison of the case of Palestine to other settler colonial experiences whether that of Native Americans or South Africans or the Irish. But how is that comparative process to be fine-tuned to avoid what we're all familiar with as sledgehammer analogies? How is it to be made a useful and viable point of historical and political inquiry? And I know that that's a subject that our questions are likely to touch on today. What we're going to do, uh, Rashid, is I will ask a few general questions about your career as a researcher and a historian, uh, and then uh, after about 20 minutes or so, we'll open up to the room and see what questions and and comments people have for you. Um, So first of all, welcome, and uh, many thanks for taking this conversation. And I I thought I would begin uh, very broadly, Rashid, by asking you about how you see yourself as a historian. One of the um, practices that we see in your books is that you draw uh, very often on your own family's history in order to foreground the kind of narratives uh, that you work on. So history to you is obviously a personal subject, but clearly you are responding very much to wider international political pressures. So it's a public subject. You've written about yourself as a historian, as an interpreter of voices. You obviously feel a sense of responsibility to the voices of history in what you do. I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about your journey as a historian, Mm -hmm. and how you see the the kind of ethics of your role?
1: Well, thank you. Thank thank you, Eve, first of all, for hosting me here. To you and to all your colleagues, it's been a wonderful, Experience and the hospitality has been amazing. Sorry, Rashid,
0: I'm good Is it not? It, so.
1: I think it is working.
0: Oh yeah.
1: Should I raise my voice? Mm-hmm. There we go. Yeah. All right. I'll pretend I'm in a lecture hall, mm-hmm. and your students, and I'll bell. Um, uh, I want to thank uh, Eve and all of her colleagues for their hospitality here. I mean, it was a wonderful example of Irish hospitality. Amazing, and uh, uh, I, I I benefited enormously from it. Um, to answer your questions, because there are two or three of them. Um, I suppose I came to see my my role as a historian from a a couple of angles and for a couple of reasons. One of them was growing up in the United States um, with a family around me that was very involved in history as it was unfolding. I had a father who worked at the United Nations in the Security Council, and his job was to chronicle and follow Developments in the Middle East, and so that was dinner table discussion, and we would travel to the Middle East and see people and hear things, um, at the same time. So, part of it started out from family and with family, and and from personal experiences. Um, growing up in the United States as a Palestinian meant being, by definition, unpopular and even unmentionable. The word was not. How should I say Something that was used in polite company, Mm -hmm. Palestine, Palestinian, and so on. And so it was a bit of an uphill struggle uh, simply to express an identity. Um, And I think that also drove me to want to consider history as more than something just for other historians, but rather as something, as you suggest, about some of my books, something that should be directed at a broader audience. I really think that and I try and teach this to my dozens and dozens of, dozens and dozens of PhD students that I've mentored over the decades, that it's really important that they learn to speak to more than just an academic audience. It's really important that they learn to speak to broader audiences. So I've always felt this partly because of my experience in the United States.
0: And on that journey, Rashid, who do you carry with you in terms of mentors, hmm. uh, historical voices uh, from other authorities, one of the things that people will, will see on reading your books is that you you go automatically to theorists of nationalism, for example, mm-hmm. that we all draw on. You go right. back to Hobsbawm. You go back to Gellner. But you also look to contemporary subaltern critics. And of course, you are the Edward Said professor, uh, a, a name that I suppose one does not carry lightly. There's the, the weight of a huge authority there, uh, certainly for, for my generation coming to scholarship, who guides you in terms of these these historical
1: authorities? Well, I mean, in, in addition to the people that you've mentioned, uh, including Edward Said, and including uh, uh, Anderson, Gellner, Hobsbawm, all of those theorists of nationalism, and some of the writers of the subaltern school, um, I'm very much influenced by the voices of some of the sources that I've read. And, some of which I, I, I cite in this book and have cited in earlier work. Um, the people who wrote in the newspapers in Palestine in the, in the first half of the 20th century, for example. Um, my wife's uh, uh, grandfather, who was the editor of a newspaper, um, one of my uncles whom I cite here, um, and a number of other important figures, uh, Abd al I could I could mention voices from this history, which, who, none of whom were historians, of course as well, I guess, as my father's voice, as people who, in addition to the theorists you mentioned, uh, I think have influenced the way I think about this history. I would also add some of the people who taught me, Albert Harani, uh, Roger Owen at Oxford, um, and other people whom I've learned from over the years in the Middle East field, including, in many cases, my own students. Um, I, I, I am, I've learned probably more from my students than I learned from my my graduate mentors um, over the years. Uh, and I hope I reflect that in my work.
0: And this is, I mean, it's a challenge. You, one of the things you, you talk about, uh, I think in, in the latest book, is avoiding being trapped simply in the elite voices yeah. that give historical authority. How do you get beyond them to, to the popular, to the subaltern, particularly in the field that you're working in, where I know that a lot of the uh, historical material, political analysis, is carried by those in the academy. Right. Um, how do you get outside that? In terms of grassroots research, how do you get back to the voices that right. are the other side of that elitism?
1: I had a, 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 what I thought was a, a seminal experience at a conference in Colombia in the early 1980s. When um, we were working, it was a conference on early Arab nationalism. And there were a number of scholars there who argued, you cannot listen to a certain set of voices that you couldn't use the press. It wasn't representative. You couldn't find out anything through that. You had to use a certain set of elite sources about Arab nationalism, um, the published works of the major figures uh, in, that, in that period. And we had a huge debate at the conference over this. And I said, no, the only way to reach the people who are moved or not moved by Arab nationalism or by any other, any other political phenomenon is through, since we can't interview them, in 1908, they were dead, uh, is through the press and similar and similar sources. I mean, the court records and so on are also are also um, valuable. Um, and I think that, that was in that was that sense of needing to go to a different set and different kind of sources was reinforced by my experience in Beirut, where we lived for 12 or 15. I lived for more than 15 years. And all my kids were born, and I was deeply involved in politics. I was deeply involved in Germany. Uh, And I was transcribing and translating and and conveying uh, not just the writings of leaderships, but also what was being said and and discussed uh, among Palestinians and Lebanese during this period of the Lebanese war from the early 70s right up to when we left in 1983. And I think that too had an impact on my sense of what voices had to be conveyed. It wasn't enough to talk about international diplomacy or whatever international law it was necessary to talk about what people were actually talking about on the ground. I wrote a book um, under siege about Palestinian decision-making during the 1982 war, during the siege of Beirut, the Israeli siege of Beirut, which I hope reflects some of those voices, though much of it is, is, is high politics as well. Uh, so it's all of the, I think, all of those things together.
0: And I hope this isn't a, an impertinent question, but, but given the material that you recount In your books, particularly that period of of, uh, being at at the forefront of negotiations in the early 90s, do you think that you are a different historian necessarily in the U.S. because of the political context that you find yourself in, Mm -hmm. because of current uh, U.S. (coughs) perspectives on Israel, uh, on the Middle East more broadly, I mean, because you you have worked, I suppose, in a bifurcated way, if that's the expression, are you two different historians as a result?
1: That's a hard question to answer. (laughs) I don't know. You might be right. I don't know. Um, I do know that I think I'm a different kind of observer than people who've never been involved politically who've never been involved in historical processes. I'm not saying that I was a major actor. I was, I was I was, at least a witness and sometimes involved. And I think that for people who think that politics is academic politics, there should be another think coming. Uh, in other words, for, for people who have never been outside the academy and then who write about uh, 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 political history or social or any other kind of history, um, there are things they can do. And there are things that I think, frankly, they cannot do because they haven't themselves in some way been involved. Now, there are problems with that. There are problems of partisanship. There are problems of of, 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 uh, an inability to see certain things because you yourself have been involved. But I think that I've benefited. Um, And I try and convey some of this in this book um, because I frankly think that if one simply looks at a negotiation, as I look at the negotiations I was involved in, or one looks at a set of events like the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 82, from the vantage point of high politics, one misses almost everything that's important. Um, so I think that having been there has helped me. I, you know, I was working on diplomatic history as a, as a, as a, as a PhD, as a DPhil student at, at Oxford. I had no idea until I was involved in negotiations how much more there was to these things. Um, similarly, I wrote about war, and I wrote about things like that earlier in, in my career until I was being bombarded by air, sea, and land, I don't think I fully understood war. I'm not suggesting you should all go out and be bombarded, but but it, it helps to get a perspective on some of these things.
0: And I, I think that's why I was interested in that that quote I gave earlier about how quickly things can change when you are literally under that kind of pressure, and how different uh, perspectives can emerge. Uh, but I want to draw back a bit. We're, we're going to maneuver around, uh, obviously, to. Palestine and Ireland Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and the relationship between them but I want to come to it through the angle of how we situate ourselves in terms of being researchers uh, because many people in this room and I know many people joining us on Facebook uh, work like myself in the broad field of what we call Irish studies Mm -hmm. and no matter what you do within Irish studies and no matter what period you work in you're never that far away from the political horizon. Now you have been foundational in the field of Palestine studies. Uh, you've, in a sense, helped create that as a field of study. Um, and obviously, I, I assume that I'm kind of badly paraphrase uh, Heaney. You do feel the hand of a contemporary history on your shoulder at all times, even when you're working on material which is historically distant which might be, in terms of content, uh, distant from that political front line, how much are you aware of a contemporary politics driving the agenda of what you do as a historian? And if that's a crude question, please tackle it uh, from whatever way you think is appropriate. And I'm asking on behalf of my Irish Studies colleagues, who I think uh, perhaps have become, myself, sometimes a bit less aware of this connection in recent years than we used to be?
1: That's really a very good question. Um, I, 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 I think that one has to sometimes resist the temptation because all history is written in the present moment of allowing the present moment to overwhelmingly dictate your vision of the past. On the other hand, this idea that there's <coughs> an Olympian position from which one can write about the past, which is unaffected by the contemporary, is complete and utter nonsense. It does not exist. There is no such thing. Uh, Gibbon was a man of that time. Each of these historians was a man of his or her time. And that's that's incontrovertible. And so I'm a person of my time and of the experiences I've been through, obviously. Um, that said, uh, I think that Palestine studies, which is a much newer field than Irish studies, um, is very much affected by the impact of the present moment. Um, I was just reading a review by John Reynolds of, of, of my book and of a book by Noura Qad, in which he points out that, that so much of the scholarship on Palestine was moved away from a settler colonial paradigm to a justice and reconciliation par- paradigm by the Oslo so-called peace process. It was not a peace process, it was a process which did not and was not designed to bring peace. It was a process designed to instantiate the present, make it permanent, and create a process from which many people derived very profitable careers. But it was not a peace process. In any case, that present moment, I think, has affected Palestinian historiography. And I've been surprised as I've (coughs) delved into, in my amateur way, into Irish history uh, by the degree to which the troubles and then the, the the Good Friday Agreement and the peace and reconciliation process in the north seem to have affected Irish historiography in the last forty or so years or fifty years, whatever. Um, very clearly, there has been an impact, and in both cases, I would suggest the impact was not entirely positive. Uh, in other words. I think that digging back and looking at the settler colonial in Palestine is absolutely essential to understanding anything, anytime. Um, Even if we are moving towards peace and reconciliation, which at the present moment, obviously, in Palestine, we are not. But that's also true in Ireland, because where you want to end up has to be derived from where you started, even if you are moving close to a positive, uh, just, equitable, decolonized end.
0: Well, that's putting it mildly, I think, in terms of uh, Irish historiography, but I know my uh, history colleagues are in the room with us, so they'll they'll have something to say about that shortly. But look, I'm going to move into the, the fire pit now of, of what people, I think, will want to talk about. How do we situate Ireland and Palestine side by side in your analysis? Um, one of the things that strikes me about the way you manage uh, the 100 years history, and obviously you've gone back to much earlier periods. But in terms of the 100 years history, one of the things that's so striking, of course, is the chronological alignment of these watershed moments that you identify. So from the Balfour Declaration from 1917 through to the, the League of Nations mandate in 1922, everything that's happening in Palestine finds this curious skewed reflection, of course, in what's happening in Ireland with the move to independence from the 1916 rising through to the treaty and, and uh, the beginnings of the free state and so on we are looking at some chronological parallels and we looked at them again I think back in the early 1980s perhaps uh, so we've certainly got that sense of connection but it disguises all kinds of differences and deviations And then, of course, recently in the research that you're doing here, you're looking much more um, intimately at the methodologies of the colonial machinery that operated not only in Palestine, but throughout the Middle East. And and you talk about, uh, particularly in the 1930s, the British tactics of repression, the playbook of British colonial administration being the same as what operated in Ireland. Uh, And you're also, of course, looking at the key connecting figures, Balfour himself being perhaps the primary one, though by no means the only one. Bloody Balfour, as he was known uh, here, and then uh, a a different incarnation uh, in uh, his later role. Um, So we've we've got these parallels, we've got these connections. How aware are you of the sensitivities that this brings up in Mm. an Irish landscape?
1: Uh, probably not sufficient. <laughs> I couldn't possibly be sufficiently sensitive to these things because, having dipped my toe into Irish historiography and Irish literature, uh, which is endless, vast, and and, and incredibly dense, and, and, and in many cases so solid as work, um, I can't. Po- and, and and having dipped my toe into the observing the politics, I couldn't possibly have a Sufficient sensitivity um, to avoid the landmines. I'm sure I'm stepping all over with everything I write about this. Uh, nevertheless, um, I'm used to sensitivity. Uh, one can't say a word about Palestine without stepping on many, many very inflamed toes in the <laughs> United States. So you know, I'm used to it, um, and I can take it. I hope. Um, but to get to the to the the nub of of your question. Um, the things that I've discovered as I've gone deeper into trying to examine this, these sets of parallels, are firstly that I think the settler colonial paradigm is insufficient to cover all of the cases that it purports to cover. That secondly, um, Irish history is probably incommensurate with any other settler colonial history because it is the first um, and the longest you can't talk about something that's been going on in year, for over 800 years with something that's been going on for just over 100 years. They're simply not commensurate. So there are, those kinds of, uh, there, are, there are those kinds of obstacles to any facile parallels. On the other hand, the deeper I delve into Irish history, the more I realize that everything that the British did everywhere, they learned here first. Everything that the British did everywhere. They learned some things in Normandy, they learned some things in France during the Hundred Years War, they learned some things in Scotland and in Wales, but almost everything they learned about colonizing, about settling, about controlling hostile majorities, about so many other techniques and, 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 and mindsets and attitudes start here. I mean, I read 18th century history of Ireland, and I could be reading Palestinian history. The words are the same, the terms are the same, the understanding of the other is the same. Uh, sometimes it's not exactly the same word. You use planter, you don't use, use settler. You use plantation, you don't use settlement. But it's the same. They're, they are mutandis, they are, mutandis, obviously. They are the same kinds of phenomena in some respects. Um, and the closer one gets to the present, the more that's the case. The personnel of the British Empire is steeped in Ireland, not just Balfour. Uh, half the generals are Anglo-Irish. Half the policemen are Anglo-Irish. Half the politicians are I- Irish peers, have estates in Ireland, have served in Ireland, and so on and so forth, or have spent a large chunk of their careers uh, dealing with Ireland in Parliament, in government, and so on and so forth. And so the people whom we grapple with, the Churchills and the Balfours, and then at a much lower level, the, the Ord Wingates and the Sir Charles teagarts have an Irish background to everything they do to us in Palestine. And then Finally, just the last thing I'll say in answer to this question. You're absolutely right about that moment towards the end of World War I. Everything changes there. It's one of those moments when identity changes in in the wake of traumatic experience, whether it's the the Easter Rising or whether it's the song or whether it's World War I generally. Uh, Everything changes. And and Britain is confronting not just the Irish Revolution, not just the Bolshevik Revolution, a German revolution, an Egyptian revolution, an Indian revolution, an Iraqi revolution, a, a nationalist uprising in Turkey, Ottoman Empire, and the refusal of the Persians to, to be quiescent. So Britain is dealing in a moment, some historical post-World War I moment, with all of these crises simultaneously at the moment of its greatest geographical extension. The British Empire was never bigger than it was in the year or two after World War I, never in its entire history. And they were victorious in World War I. At the same time, they were bankrupt, their army was stretched thin, and the same politicians in London were dealing with eight or 10 crises simultaneously. That's why Ireland wins, because it took advantage of Britain's, Britain's uh, 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 difficulty was Ireland's opportunity. It was also the opportunity of the Turks, and the Persians, and the Bolsheviks. Palestinians weren't so lucky. <laughs> Some of the other peoples weren't so lucky. So uh, I think you're right in putting your finger on that moment, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I uh, it's funny. It's the it's the end of a phase of, of British colonialism in Ireland, which doesn't end completely, of course. But it's the end of the phase, and it's the beginning of the of the of the colonization with British support by the Zionist movement of Palestine. So it is a it's a very important turning point.
0: And I'm gonna I'm gonna squeeze in one more question, which is with my literary hat on, because one of the things you're so attentive to in uh, hundred years and in previous books. Is the language Mm -hmm. that has carried this story, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's a brilliant analysis of the language, even of the word home, in the Balfour Declaration, through to the kind of vocabulary that, as you've shown, carries across Mm -hmm. from one colonial situation, settler colonial situation to another. We discussed this uh, previously, Rashid. But I'm I'm just going to ask you, before we open to questions, about how you see certain romanticisms and mythologies carried Mm. from one situation to another the narrative for example of unfinished business Mm. that exists in irish politics as it obviously exists in the middle east the narrative of intractability that Mm. these are conflicts that will always happen that will always recur that violence is inevitable uh, that there won't be closure how much are they playing into your field of vision in looking at parallels
1: yeah. Uh, another good question. Eve. Um, well, I think that, let, let me start from the end with this intractability uh, uh, concept. Um, if you start from the wrong place, you're going to end up in the wrong place. In other words, if one starts from assumptions about the Irish, or about Catholics and Protestants, or about Muslims and, and Jews, or about Arab nationalism and Zionism, or whatever it may be, Um, and one uses that as the grounding of one's analysis, one is not going to end up in the right place. Um, I think that in, in both cases, difficult though it is, for particularly the colonial side of this equation to accept it, one has to understand that colonial background. And one has to understand that part of the problem is decolonizing, and that has a threatening ring to it for those who are thereby branded as the colonists or the settlers or whatever it may be. And that makes it all the more difficult and all the more sensitive. But I think that if one doesn't use that framework of analysis, <laughs> you can't get anywhere. Of course it's intractable, Protestants and Catholics. Arabs and Jews—they will never, and you, and, and a history is then a false history is then created, going back in this com- in this country before there even was a Reformation, and in and in the case of Palestine in the Middle East, long before there was any conflict between Arabs and Jews or Muslims and Jews, to prove that in fact that's the that's the real problem. And is of course it's there's no way to solve it. It's, it's something intrinsic in these people, whichever people. So that aspect of it I think requires a kind of steely determination to insist on things that are inherently uncomfortable. Uh, you have populations that have been here four or 500 years. They're not settlers. They're not settlers anymore. Uh, Mahmoud Mandani has a wonderful, wonderful book, uh, uh, Settlers into Natives, which many people have critiqued, but I think he's, he's, he's got an idea there just with the very title. Um, There are very few titles like that that work that way. Um, And it works in in that respect. Nevertheless, one has to go back and understand where this project came from, what it did, and, and how it has worked itself out throughout history. It was a settler colonial project. Does that mean that the Protestants in Northern Ireland are settlers? Of course not, they're natives. Does that mean that the Israelis are settlers? Well, some of them today in Hebrew, are, they are actually today stealing land, today cutting down old trees, today expelling people from their property or their houses. Those are settlers. That's like Ulster, and, you know, uh, under Cromwell. But uh, are, are well, Israelis it's permanently categorized as settlers and therefore excluded, in a sense, from you know circle of virtue? Of course not. There's no way to solve it that way. But to exclude the history to ignore the history means you ignore the only way to resolve this, which is to, to, to come to grips with what colonization, colonialism has done. And I think that that is a hard road to hoe for a historian, uh, and certainly for a policy analyst. It must be even harder. Um, I'm not a policy analyst. I mean, I'm not. I don't make policy. I just write history, and I hope I have an impact on the public and maybe that will impact policy one day. Um, but there's no, in my view, there's no other way.
0: Just <laughs> <laughs> let's open <let's laughs> really Sorry, that we, uh, don't uh, time has we run out, and we're going to have to back bring back this to a reaction. close. Yep. But obviously, we are living, uh, watching an unfinished history. To go back to our earlier discussion, uh, and Rashid, your research is unfinished. I hope very much that you will come back uh, when it is complete, or as complete as it can be, and and talk to us again. I want to thank everybody. For joining us for their questions. Uh, to thank those of us those of you who joined on Facebook. Uh, but most of all, Rashid, thank you very, very much for your candor and your integrity in talking to us about your work.
1: Thank, thank you. you. So how does it come? Step in provenance towards the history of the we'll time of the Year library. As well as being haired.
0: The hub is a space
1: contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Carl
0: The hub is about impact.
1: The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminist Here's to the next 10 years.